over the history of mankind, there have been a number of wars that have taken place. At the end of a, most of those wars, there have been a number of peace treaties that have been signed. Some of them uh, were huge uh, historical peace treaties and some uh, kind of peace treaties that were done in silence. Uh, some of those peace treaties had some uh, large uh, recommendations or large requirements on the end of them, and some not so much. Some just were happy to have the war be over. I was thinking about that this week as I was looking and, and thinking about Jacob and Laban's relationship. As we have looked at Jacob and, relation, Jacob and Laban's relationship, we have certainly seen a relationship that was full of animosity, a relationship that was full of bitterness, a relationship that was full of war may be a stretch, but yet as we look at their relationship, we sure see a relationship full of little battles, uh, mind games and, and uh, abusive relationship uh, between the two of them. This morning in our journey through Genesis, we come to Genesis 31, verses 43 through 55. And this is the last leg or the last segment that we see between Jacob and Laban. This is the last little piece in their relationship together that we look at. Jacob had fled when he saw an opportunity to try to break up this relationship, and Laban pursued him. And when Laban was just one day of travel away, uh, as he rested that night, God stepped in and told Laban not to harm Jacob. And Laban went ahead and confronted Jacob, but there was nothing that he could do. And he stood before Jacob, and there was nothing that he could do to, to even the score. And as we look at this relationship, as we see them coming together at this last moment, we see that they come to this covenant agreement. There's a decision that's made where this peace treaty is signed. And while making this covenant, Jacob clarifies where his hope lies. He clarifies who is the God that he serves. And as we look at this passage this morning, I hope that we can be reminded of that relationship that we have with God, that God is the one who watches over us. As we look at this passage this morning, there are three headings that we're going to take. We're going to look at the covenant that's suggested. We're going to look at the covenant that's supported. And we're going to look at the covenant as it's sanctioned. Before we dive into this, let's just pause for a moment. Father, we're thankful that you've given us this day. Thankful that you've given us your word. Thankful, Father, that we're able to, on this day, gather together and set with your word open on our laps. Father, there are many churches that don't desire to study your word. Thankful for this group of believers this morning that are here because they want to hear from you. They want to hear from your word. They don't want to hear from me. They want your word to speak to us this morning. Father, I'm just a man. Pray you'd take my mind and my heart and my tongue and allow me to share what you would have your people to hear. Lord, let us hear from you today, not the ramblings of man, but Lord, let us hear from you today. And I pray, Lord, as we leave this morning, that we'll be able to say that we, each of us, have heard from you today. 
So, Lord, in order for that to happen, you're going to have to take my mind and my mouth and my tongue and, Lord, my heart and speak through me today. Pray your Holy Spirit would be free to do that, Lord, this morning. We pray all of these things in your Son's perfect name. Amen. As we begin this morning in our journey through this section of Genesis 31, the first thing we see in verse 43 is that this covenant is suggested. Look at verse 43 with me. It says, Then Laban answered, and he said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. Laban, as we see him here and as we encounter him here, we see his boastful declaration here. Now, if we had not been following Laban and Jacob, and we were just happening to be here right now, and and see Jacob or see Laban in this instance, we see Laban's claim here, and we would not help but believe that this is exactly true what Laban is sharing, that these daughters that are here, these grandchildren that are here, these flocks that are here, we would believe that they were all Laban's because That is what Laban is claiming here in this boastful claim. And you can hear him and picture him as he begins to do this. It starts out just as, the daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. These flocks are my flocks. Because he's got to kind of make room for his chest, right, as his chest swells. All right. If he's wearing a hat, he would have to readjust it as his head grew and as he shared his pride with everybody who was gathered there. Now, as Laban makes this declaration, we've seen him make this declaration and we know that Jacob is there with his family. We know that all of Laban's kinsmen are there because that's who Laban brought with him was all of his kinsmen. Now, Jacob declared earlier and said, Laban, anything that you find that's yours, you let them know, you let me know, and we'll let our kinsmen decide. Laban, in this moment, in this moment of pride, in this mindset where he's at, he wants to come out and he wants to look as if he is somebody that he is not. We have seen the real Laban as we have made our way through this passage. Laban in this moment wants to reverse and change the way everybody's looking at him. So he makes this statement. Now the kinsmen who were there knew that Jacob had worked for these two wives. And with them, those two servant women were given. We know that Jacob has brought about all of these children. It's been a struggle, but these children are there. We know that they are Jacob's. We know that as we've watched Jacob work for Laban, that Laban continued to change Jacob's salary, but yet God blessed Jacob, and Jacob has this huge flock. We know all of that. But Laban, in this moment of boastfulness, tries to make everyone forget that. Notice what he says in verse 43 as it continues. But what can I do this day for these my daughters? or for their children whom they have borne. Laban is seeking to appear here as being generous. He is fake in his generosity, but he wants to appear as if he's generous. Everything Jacob has 
has been rightfully earned. Laban came to destroy Jacob and to take back his daughters, to take back his flocks. And I'm sure in that seven days that he was traveling after Jacob to try to destroy Jacob, to try to catch up with Jacob, I'm sure he was boasting about what was going to happen when he finally met Jacob. But God spoke to him that night and said, ain't going to happen. I don't think he used incorrect English, but that's our translation. Ain't going to happen. And so now Laban, trying to save face, instead of, instead of admitting it, he's trying to save face. And he says, you know what? I could take it all away, but I'm not going to. I could remove the things that are mine, but I'm not going to. So now in this moment, Laban appears to be the peacemaker. He appears to be the bigger man. He appears to be the one who is not going to cause problems, even though for the last 20 years, he's been the one who caused problems. Who is at work in this situation here? God is at work. God is at work. Laban is here in this situation, and God is working behind the scenes. We know that Laban was unable to touch Jacob because God told him that he couldn't. So Laban has to leave everything as it is because God has been at work. Now notice what he says in verse 44. Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. Now a covenant is a binding agreement. A covenant is an agreement that, that cannot be broken. And as Laban makes this covenant, as he comes and makes this suggestion that we come up with a covenant, it's kind of an interesting thing as we think about Jacob's mindset. Because Jacob is, or Laban, I, Laban has done nothing but try to belittle Jacob for the last 20 years. That's all he's tried to do is to make Jacob smaller. At this moment, Laban is confessing that Jacob is now equal with him. So in suggesting that they make a covenant, he's recognizing Jacob for who Jacob is. And he says, hey, we really need to make a covenant. Now, Laban doesn't want Jacob to come back and take everything else. If these idols that Rebekah has if Jacob has those, and he comes back and uses those to, to take what the rest of the inheritance would be, then that really would leave Laban in a bad place. Jacob has already come in, served God, God has blessed him, and Jacob is walking away with his daughters and all of his flock. Laban really can't afford for Jacob to do that again. Because Laban knows there's nothing that he can do to Jacob because God is on his side. God is with him. So he says, hey, let's make this peace treaty. Let's make this covenant. Now, this covenant was not necessary for Jacob. There was no way that Jacob was going back. God had called him to the promised land. He didn't want anything to do with Laban or his place that he called home. So this covenant would pretty much act as a settlement between Laban and Jacob. When someone sues someone and they say, you know what, I'm going to sue you for 
$25 million. That person will come back oftentimes and say, you know what, let's make a settlement. Instead of me paying you $25 million for the wrong that I've done, why don't we just settle on $5 million and I'll just give you $5 million and we'll call it good. If that person agrees to that $5 million, then it's good, right? All right, after we meet, I'll write you each checks for $5 million. So this settlement, once this settlement is settled, then everything's good. So if you're handed that check for $5 million and you come back in two years and say, I want my other $20 million, they would say, the court would say, no way. You settled for $5 million. You forfeited that $20 million. So in Laban's coming to Jacob and saying, hey, let's, let's do a peace treaty here. He's coming to Laban, he's coming to Jacob. Laban is coming to Jacob and saying, hey, let's, let's call a truce here. Let's, let's let bygones be bygones. Let's just settle this. You go your way, I'll go my way. We'll just call it good uh, and just kind of leave it at that. So this is where Laban is coming from. And as we think about this, this is going to cover up his own unworthiness. This is going to cover up Laban's shortcomings. And what he's doing in this is trying to make himself look like the bigger guy. He's trying to make Jacob look like the shady character. But he wants to look like the better guy. Jacob really doesn't care. Jacob's in good shape. So this is Laban's suggestion. Now, the covenant is supported. Look at verse 45. So Jacob took a stone and he set it up as a pillar. Jacob set up this stone as a pillar. And this stone, as Jacob placed this, this would would show that Jacob was in agreement to this covenant. And this stone would be that reminder of this covenant. This would be a symbol of that covenant that they this peace treaty that they agreed to. Uh, This would serve as a reminder to Jacob and to Laban. It would serve as a reminder to Jacob's family and to Laban's family. And we see them gathered there in this moment. But this would also be a symbol for future generations. This territory that Jacob was now moving into this would be a symbol that this was the barrier. Everything on the east side would belong to Laban, and everything that was on the west side would belong to Jacob. And this would be that boundary. This would be the line that would not be crossed. It would be recognized as the boundary. And that pillar would be the item that would identify this boundary. And so this would be a boundary for the future. This would establish the boundary of Israel. And you know, as we think about this boundary from where Laban's family is and from where Jacob's family is, isn't it interesting that as this covenant is made between these two people groups, that God was there. And you know what? God still knows where that boundary is between Israel and Syria. 
even though there may be battles going on about that boundary, there was a covenant that was made here. And this covenant was made before God. And the two people groups that were there recognized this boundary. Verse 46, Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and they made a heap. And they ate there by the heap. Now, it's interesting that this single stone that Jacob sets up there would stand as a testimony. Jacob brought that single stone and set it there. And then he said, hey guys, everybody else gather stones and let's make a heap. I love that word heap, doesn't it? I mean, that's just, that's just awesome. That's something that my dad would say. You know, that's a heap of turkey on your plate right there. That would be a word that he would use. So Jacob says, hey, let's gather stones and let's make a heap here. This heap would serve as a testimony. And the kinsmen would be involved in bringing this heap into position. They could stand back years later, and if it was just a single stone, and say, Jacob set that stone. That's Jacob's doing. But now they look, and there's a heap there, and the kinsmen are all saying, yeah, there was a group of us. And we all gathered stones and built that heap. They are now participants in this covenant agreement. Jacob's people, Laban's people, heap gatherers recognizing this boundary and agreeing to this boundary. A number of kinsmen together. And look what it says. They took stones and they made a heap and they ate there by the heap. So they build the heap, they gather stones for the heap, and then they eat by the heap. This was a practice that was done to strengthen an agreement. Isn't it hard sometimes to eat with somebody when you are in disagreement with them? It just doesn't seem to work real well. You go to the restaurant and you see them and you just don't really want to eat with them. You've got to walk back out and get in the car and go home with them. But anyway, you don't want to eat with them. All right. This is intense fellowship that will have to be carried out at home. Okay. That's what we're going to do. But it seems like when we're eating with somebody, there's, there's fellowship there, isn't there? There's an enjoyment of company there. There's visiting that takes place. There's conversation that takes place. It's amazing around the kitchen table, just some of the, the things that you can talk about and some of the things that you can share when you're at the table. And that's just the way it is. And so that's what this group does. They are not forced into this heap collect, uh, construction. They're not forced to do that. This was an agreement that they agreed to do. And now they're getting together they're enjoying a meal together with this heap, by this heap, in the midst of this heap. This heap would be a witness. This heap would be a witness to this covenant agreement that they've just made. Look at verse 47 here. 
It says Laban called it a Jaeger Sadutha, Sadutha. But Jacob called it Galid. I like Jacob's better. Laban said, This heap is a witness between me, between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid. Now, Laban, that word that Laban uses there is an Aramaic term. Uh, Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek are the languages that are written, that the, the original scriptures were recorded in. And this is an Aramaic word that's used here. This Aramaic word would have been a word that Rebecca uh, would have used. Uh, Jacob uses a Hebrew name. Uh, Hebrew was the language of the land of Canaan. And so that is the word that is used there uh, by Jacob is a Hebrew word. But both of these titles, both of these names mean a heap of witness. And so they name this place the heap of witness. They identify this place as the heap of witness. Verse 49 says, And Mizpah, for he said, The Lord watch between me, between you and me, when we are out of one another's sight. So Mizpah means watchtower. Mizpah means watchtower. And notice that Laban says the Lord. In your copy of the scriptures, is Lord in all uppercase? That means this is the word Yahweh. This is Jacob's God. Laban doesn't use the name of his God. He uses the name of Jacob's God. This word for Yahweh is the covenant-keeping God, the promise-keeping God. That's the word Laban uses. So Laban says, Jake, that's what he called him, Jake, your God is going to watch over this covenant. Your God is going to keep you responsible for this covenant. This is all Laban, as he shares this, this is giving Laban peace of mind. He wants Jacob to make sure that Jacob follows through with this agreement. Laban is fearful of Jacob. He wants to make sure that Jacob follows this agreement and he doesn't come and take away anything. And he calls on God to watch over this boundary. He calls on God to watch over this boundary. This covenant that is made between these two people groups. God is going to watch over this boundary. Notice what he says in verse 50. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with you, see, God is witness between you and me. Now it's interesting that as Laban makes this statement, as we have seen the behavior of Jacob, we have not really seen him do anything that would make us think that he's oppressing his daughters. He loves Rachel. We know that he loves Rachel. We've seen him treat Leah well. He's given Leah children. Uh, he's taken care of Leah. Remember when he made the decision to leave his father behind? He called both Leah and Rachel together and got their opinions. So we see him as, from what we see in Scripture, we don't see him as an oppressive husband. Jacob wanted to be married to Rachel. Rachel was the one he loved. 
It was Laban's trick that brought Leah into a marital relationship with Jacob. But now he's acting that as if he is the caring father. For 20 years, we've seen him not be a caring father. But now all of a sudden, he is pretending to be this caring father. So Laban suggests this covenant, and Jacob supports this covenant, and Jacob is willing to enter into this covenant. Now notice how this covenant is sanctioned, how this covenant begins. Verse 51, Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and the pillar which I set between you and me? This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. We see Laban's fear here, don't we? And notice that Laban says, I've put this pillar here. I've put this heap here. Boy, Laban is just full of himself, isn't he? He's still standing, so you can see the S or the L on his chest. That's still his mindset. This is all about me. Laban continues his ways. He didn't set up this heap, but he's the one taking credit for this heap. And in fact, it was Jacob who set up this heap and worked this heap. Now notice what it says in verse 53. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor and the God of their father judge between us. Now, Laban invokes the God of Abraham. This would have been Yahweh. That's who he calls into uh, to point there. But he also invokes the God of Nahor. Now, Nahor was Abraham's brother. Abraham and Nahor were in the land of Ur when God called Abraham out of Ur to go to the promised land. Nahor's God was not the God of Abraham. He was a different God. We don't see Nahor worshiping the God of Abraham. Instead, we read this in Joshua 24, verse 2. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Now, we saw Abraham cross the Euphrates into the promised land, didn't we? Now we see this mentioned, that when they were on the other side of that, they served other gods. Nahor served other gods. He didn't serve Abraham, the one true, Abraham's one true God, the God of Abraham. He served other gods. And so Laban, as he makes this covenant agreement, as he shares this agreement, he says, hey, let's let your God be involved, and let's let the God of Nahor be involved, and let's make this agreement between us. And the God of their father, which would have been Terah, let's let his God be over this whole agreement. This would have been a great opportunity for Jacob to say, okay, good enough, let's make our move. But there's something that Jacob does here. Look at verse 53. 
So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. You see, Isaac was still serving the one true God. Isaac is still serving the one true God in reverence and in awe with reverence for the one true God. What Jacob does here, he reveals the truth about God. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, is not the same God of Nahor. He said, you can bring the other Nahor into this, but I'm not swearing by him. I am putting this in the hands of the one true God. Just so that we can be clear about this, Jacob clarifies that it's the one true God that he is looking to. Now, we may say, well, what's the big deal about this? Sometimes, in our country, we see the same thing. We see someone after a sporting event or, or some other circumstance, a microphone is shoved in their face, and they say, you know what? We're just looking to God. We're just thanking God. We're just trusting God. When you hear someone share that, we can see that through our mind's eye, and we can think there's only one God, so there must be speaking of the one true God. But the person who is speaking that may be thinking about a different God. They may have a God made in their own image. So when we hear someone say that, our mind says, well, they must be a believer. But you know, there is some discrepancy there that they may not really be a true believer. But what happens if that same person gets a microphone shoved in their face and they say, boy, I would just like to thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is a difference, isn't it? That is a clarifying difference that is made there you realize that that person with the microphone in their face is a true believer. They're trusting in Christ and Christ alone as Savior. They're recognizing who Jesus Christ truly is. And there is no doubt. You know, we can say that I'm trusting in God and people kind of accept that because it kind of fits whatever God they have. But if you say, I'm trusting in Christ and Christ alone, that's a deal breaker, isn't it? It's amazing how people are allowed to pray as long as they don't pray in Jesus' name. But when you pray in Jesus' name, that's a deal breaker. I've seen some of those shows that are on TV, and they are told that, hey, we respect your religious beliefs, but we ask that you don't pray in the name of Jesus. Just close your prayer without that. In some of the political arenas, they encourage them not to pray in Jesus' name because they don't want to offend anybody. But you know, when we mention the name of Christ, when we mention who Jesus is, there's a clarification there of who we truly serve. This is what Jacob does right here. Hey, the one true God, the God that 
my father fears and looks at with reverence. That's the God I serve. That's the God who's blessed me in this circumstance. And that's where my allegiance lies. And he's going to be the one that watches over this covenant agreement that we've made. He's going to be that one. That is Jacob's testimony. That's what Jacob shares. Now notice what Jacob does next. Verse 54. Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country, and he called his kinsmen to eat bread. And they ate bread, and they spent the night in the hill country. You know what I thought about when I read that the first time? And maybe you thought this too. Jacob offered up this sacrifice, shedding the blood of this animal. And then he ate bread. You remember what the people of Israel did before they left Egypt? They sacrificed the lamb. And they partook of unleavened bread, didn't they? When we gather together for communion, we partake of the bread and we partake of the juice as a symbol of the blood of Christ. There's a recognition here of who Christ is, of of who God is, a recognition of who God truly is. Now, as we look at Genesis 31, how many of you in your Bible does the book of Genesis come before the book of Exodus? Just a show of hands. All right, three of you. Praise the Lord. So the law was given in the book of Exodus, right? The book of Exodus, the book of Leviticus, shares with us the sacrificial system. We are pre-sacrificial system here. But you know what? We come after Genesis 3, don't we? Genesis 3, God took the animal and covered Adam and Eve with the skin of those animals to cover their sin. Adam tried to cover his sin himself with just a fig leaf, and God said that won't do. Only by the shedding of blood is there forgiveness of sin. And Jacob does this sacrifice, just like Adam had done, just like Abraham had learned, just like Isaac had learned, just like Jacob had learned. This sacrifice is offered. This blood is shed. And this blood and this bread is partaken of. And Jacob, in the midst of his pagan family, offers this sacrifice and encourages his family to partake in this with him. Now notice verse 55. Early in the morning, Laban arose kissed his grandchildren and his daughters, and he blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. Laban arose early, and Laban departed. He kissed his daughters, kissed his grandkids goodbye, and he departed. This is the last time that we see Laban in Scripture. Laban walks out of Scripture forever, right here. He walks back to his life of idolatry. 
walks back to his life of covetousness, walks back to his old life. He had tasted the blessings of God. He confessed and admitted to Jacob that God had blessed him because of Jacob. He still chose to oppose Jacob during that time. And he walks away and departs from Jacob at this time. Boy, when I think about that, my heart hurts for Laban to think that he's just walked away from God. But you know, as we think about that, there are some who've seen God at work and they felt God tugging on their hearts and they've heard of who God is. They've heard of who Jesus Christ is. They've heard about their sin debt and how there's no way they can have a relationship with God without the shedding of blood. And they've heard that Jesus Christ is the only one who can save them from their sins because he lived a perfect life and he shed his blood for them and paid the penalty for them. And if they would just trust Christ as Lord and as Savior, they would be forgiven of their sin and they would have the blessings of God. They would be a child of God. They would be brought into the family of God and they would be redeemed no longer under the wrath of God, but now under the blessing of God. No no longer going to experience the judgment of God, but now going to experience the blessing and the eternal bliss that God offers. And it's only available through Jesus Christ. And there are many who have heard that message and they've turned away. They've done just as Laban has done. This is what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. It is impossible in the case of those who've once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, who've shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up in contempt. What the writer of Hebrews is sharing, don't be like Laban. Don't be like Laban. If you've heard the good news of Jesus Christ and you've felt God tugging on your heart, to trust Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. Don't shun that. Don't turn away from that. Because when we reject that, when we say, I don't need that, we're saying no to God, and we're walking away from the blessings of God. We're walking away from the gift of God. Don't do that. Don't do that. Salvation is only found in Christ and Christ alone. There is no other way. There is no other way. Some people will say, you know what, there's lots of ways to heaven because there's lots of ways to Adrian. And that is true. There's lots of ways to Adrian. But Adrian is not heaven. There is only one way into heaven. 
Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father but by me. It's only through Christ. It's only through Christ. The church can't save you. The pastor can't save you. Your parents can't save you. It's only Christ that can save you. And you have to turn to him and believe in him and believe that he is the only thing you need for salvation. And then salvation can be yours. We don't know how much time we have on this earth. When you look at a headstone, there's only two numbers on there. Our birth date, which we had no control over, and our death date, which we have no control over. The only thing we control is the dash in the middle. We don't know how long that dash is. I remember thinking as a young kid, I don't really know if I want to follow Christ yet. I think I'll wait till I'm 30. But you know, we're not guaranteed 30, are we? You may be thinking that right now. Don't wait. Turn to Jesus today. Trust him as Savior today. So there you have it. The covenant that was suggested the covenant that Jacob supported, and the covenant as it was sanctioned as Laban and Jacob choose to go their own ways, they follow this covenant. So what do we take home from this? What do we apply to our Sunday afternoon, to our Monday morning? I think the first thing we've got to look at is Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. He created the heavens and the earth. You see, because he created the heavens and the earth, he has ownership. Because God created the heavens and the earth, he's the one who makes the decisions. Because God is a holy God, because God has a standard that we have fallen short of because of sin, it's not us who makes the call. God is the one who makes the call. Jacob, as he's here in this moment, he acknowledges God. He recognizes who the one true God is. And that's what we've got to do. When we are given opportunities to proclaim Christ, when we are given opportunities to recognize the one true God, that's what we've got to do. We've got to do. We've got to look for those opportunities, take advantage of those opportunities to proclaim Christ. That's what Jacob does in this opportunity. You know, as I read this and as I think about this, I'm thankful that God is our watchtower. We closed last week and we looked at how Jacob said, you know what, Laban, you would left me with nothing, but God is on my side. God is on my side. I'm so thankful that as we think about God, I'm so thankful that God is on my side. I'm so thankful that God is my watchtower, that he's watching over me, caring for me, looking out for me. Because, man, my wife will give testimony that I'm helpless and hopeless. But, you know, God watches over me. As I look back on my life and see some of the choices that I've made, I'm thankful that God knew me before I knew him. Because he directed my path even before I knew that. I'm so thankful that he's allowed me to come into his family. 
not because I'm having a great hair day, but because of what Jesus Christ has done. And by faith in Christ, I can come into the watchful care of God my Father. Troubles my heart that Laban looked at this and Laban walked away. Laban walked away. Maybe you're there today. Maybe you've heard all of this talk about Jesus and you keep just walking away. Maybe God has been speaking to your heart for some things in your life that you need to adjust and turn back to God. Don't be like Laban. Don't walk away. Instead, repent. Repent is to change directions. So instead of walking away, repent and come back. Repent and come back. And that's what I want to encourage you to do today. Repent and come back. You've never trusted Christ as Savior? Repent and turn back to Christ. If you've trusted Christ as Savior and you're living in the world, living like the world, repent and come back. Come back.